Today's uh, sermon will be from 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 11. Um, you may notice that Pastor Mike won't be up here. Uh, we, today we have a guest preacher, Philip Bramson. Um, he's the pastor at Christ Community Church. Uh, him and Mike and a number of other pastors have been meeting together to pray, so um, please pray for him uh, as he preaches today and uh, hear a word from 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman, the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. If you don't have a handout, uh, feel free to raise your hand, and I think Nathan said he'd get you one. Good morning. I was introduced. Again, my name is Philip Bramson, and I do pastor Christ Community Church, which is not very far from here. Uh, I've been there since 2010. When I came here for seminary, I've been a pastor there since 2013. I um, am glad to call Mike a friend. It's been good to get to know him, and we've been spent uh, a little bit of time together as his family and my family, so I value his friendship. <clears throat> Let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us certain texts in Scripture that are meant to warn us. You use these texts uh, to work in our hearts, work in our minds, to um, uh, turn us away from sin and back to yourself. Jesus told us that there are some who uh, think that they are his, but he will say, I never knew you. Paul said that there are some who will enter heaven, um, but as through fire. 
as the works of their life are burned up. Lord, please protect us from the pride that would make us think that we are above such things. Help us to listen to the words um, of this text, uh, that you may do your good work in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're dropping into about the middle of David's reign, and we're also in the middle of an international crisis. Uh, Ammon, Syria, and Israel are in conflict. Israel has already subjugated Syria. Uh, Ammon has not been subjugated. They're still fighting. They're fighting on. And we're in about the middle of that war. 2 Samuel 11 is about a year into it. And this is when David sins with Bathsheba. Now, I want to start at the outside by pointing out that this text focuses on David. The condemnation at the end of the text, where God says that David's uh, actions displeased him, the attention to detail in the text, who speaks in the dialogue, everything is looking at David. And it's focusing on his responsibility and his sin. Now, Bathsheba may bear some responsibility. The text really doesn't tell us much about that. And in fact, it could be that what we're seeing here is uh, a power dynamic where David is taking and Bathsheba um, has very little power. So here we have David, a man after God's own heart. And God has blessed him. God has poured out his blessings on him. God has supported him and David has been righteous. He was bold in faith before Goliath. He was a faithful servant of King Saul and of Israel. He was faithful and righteous even when, say, he had the opportunity to kill Saul, who was trying to kill him. David did not kill Saul. He was a sacrificial leader time and again. He was a servant king, and he glorified God over and over again in First and Second Samuel. And of course, we also have his Psalms, where he also glorifies God. Now, this doesn't mean that Scripture paints him up to this point as perfect. He's clearly imperfect. But here, at the center of 2 Samuel, David sins horribly. Not a little bit, a lot. Not a sin that's worse just because he's king, a sin that's horrible. He commits adultery. He's about to commit murder. And a boatload of other sins come rushing out like a torrent from this sin. And it takes our Sunday school picture of David, uh, a caricature of David, and it drags him through the mud. And some people like myself don't like that. Uh, We like David. If I could edit my Bible like Thomas Jefferson and cut out the parts I didn't like, I might just cut out 2 Samuel verse 11. Although, unfortunately, then 2 Samuel wouldn't make much sense because the rest of 2 Samuel is mostly an unfolding of the consequences of David's sin. So what went wrong? David, what were you doing? That's a very important question we're going to answer today. Because the text in your Bible that you have here, that we're reading today, is here for your benefit. I want to ask the question today, how will you fall? Now, I don't know that you'll fall. I hope you won't fall. But if you do... What you have here is a study of how it will happen, how you will fall. Let's turn to the first point. You will be in a me mood. You will be in a me mood. Read the first verse again. 
In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. What we see here is that David is kicking back and taking a break. This isn't the David we've known so far. He, so far, he has been an effective, successful, responsible, hardworking military leader. But the text emphasizes his absence. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sends Joab. This contrasts, of course, with Uriah. In just a few verses, Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. When David calls him back to try to cover up his sin, Uriah refuses to go to his wife, and he basically says, hey, my fellow soldiers, they're at war. What right do I have to go to my wife? In chapter 12, and I find this particularly amusing, Joab tells David to come out to war. I'll read from chapter 12, verses 26 to 29. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by not my name. Lest I take the city and it be called by my name. Joab is saying, King David, you are conspicuously absent. And I'm about to take credit. But David's at home taking it easy. I think he thought he could semi-retire, right? He looked at his army. He said, I built this great army. I trained these men. Uh, I, I have, I've made it far enough in life that I can send them off on their way and they'll go win battles and conquer my enemies. I have the privilege of staying home now. And it's not that David's directly disobeying an explicit command of Scripture. There's no command in Scripture that the kings lead their armies into battle. Instead, the text is saying, David has become self-indulgent. He's at home, writing some poetry probably, practicing his lyre, munching on a bowl of grapes. He's in a me mood. How will you fall? You will be in a me mood. But we were made to work. Adam was put in the garden to work it. His wife was given to him to help him work. They were made viceroys, working um, kings under the king and creator. We were made to be active. I like to tell people, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be taking it easy. You're going to be working. You were made to work. But we idolize comfort. We view work as evil, an annoyance. We loathe our responsibilities at home. We become uh, curmudgeonly about the work we have ahead of us starting on Monday. But we were made to work. We may be jealous of people who are retired, but we were made to work. We make ourselves vulnerable to sin, though, when we're in a me mood. When are you most likely to buy something at the grocery store that you should not? It's when you're in a me mood. When do you eat something that you should not? It's when you're in a me mood. When you're in a me mood, you make me-centered decisions. And of course, all sin is me-centered. You're thinking about your interests, your priorities, not your responsibilities or your opportunities to love others. 
Now, David, on the whole, he actually is an unselfish leader. Um, he sacrifices for his men. He shows Hesed, loving kindness, to Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Hard to say. Here he becomes a selfish king. He's lusting after Bathsheba, and he's showing Hesed only to himself. He doesn't care about her. He doesn't care about Uriah. He doesn't care about all the people who are depending on their leader. It's all about David. And it's really easy to slip into a me mood. It's really, really easy. Uh, some friends at college years ago, they wrote a skit that, that kind of woke me up to this. And it went like this. So my friends, Joshua, Michelle, and some other folks, they had a script with two scripts. And for in one script, they're having like a normal everyday conversation. Oh, hey, good to see you, Josh. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Hey, do you want to meet up this weekend? No, no, no. I'm going to go see uh, Caroline instead. And then I got some work. Do you want to meet up the weekend after? Sure, let's do that. They had a normal conversation. And then underneath it, everyone who wasn't speaking in the first script was saying, me, 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 me. And then you see it. You can do everything for you. Everything you say and everything you do can be about you. It can be really easy to slip into a me mood. And that's where David finds himself. The solution, the solution is to fill your life with active love for other people. Mike and I have a common friend. His name is Mark. He's one of the other pastors we meet with each month. He has pancreatic cancer. He is almost always in chemo. In fact, we meet in his week off each month when he's less affected by the chemo. When I asked how he was doing, he said, I just want to do the good works I'm created in Christ to do. And he continues week after week, serving his church, preaching each Sunday, meeting with people. Now, doesn't Mark Yonke, who is going to die, have the right to take a break? The right for a sabbatical? No one would, no one would question him if he did that. I wouldn't. Why does he keep working? Because he knows he's created in Christ to do good works. And the cancer and the chemo, they slow him down a little bit, but they don't negate his calling in Christ. So he keeps going to glorify Jesus. But if you check out, you check out and you decide to love yourself instead of others, you can easily check out of your calling in Christ, and it makes your soul dangerously vulnerable. So you might hate to be busy. You shouldn't. Being a busy believer means being productive in the work of loving others and glorifying God. If you are not busy, you, you are not actively loving your fellow believers. And there's no such thing as glorifying God with your day on a day when you don't do anything. We gotta rest, but we gotta be busy being fruitful. The application there is rejoice to be busy for Jesus. Rejoice to be busy for Jesus keeping busy with the good works that God has created you in Christ to do. I want you to think of yourself, might be a stretch here, think of yourself as a boat sunk underneath a lake at the bottom of the lake, right? 
This represents when you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And then God raised you up, and now you float on top of the lake. Now, you're not a perfect boat. You got some leaks. Sin seeps into your boat, and you got to patch the boat. Uh, sometimes you need to bail the boat out to keep it afloat. And some Christians um, uh, may be in Christ, but they're like a rowboat that's like sunk into the water. You can see the edge of the boat, but it's full of water. They're sitting there up to their navel in water. Precarious situation. Now, some boats have what's called a passive drain. Who's heard of a passive drain? Good. Some physics for you. Some boats, like a sailboat, for example, will have a hole in the back of the boat, and it's underwater. And as the boat moves, the, the physics of the water flowing back, back behind the boat suck the water out of the boat, only if it's moving. If you are moving as a believer, that sucks the water out of the boat. It bails the boat for you, so to speak. Doing the good works you were created in Christ to do sucks the water out of the boat. But David, he's in a me mood. He's not moving and his boat floods. Number two, you will fall because of the lesser sins you have accepted as normal. You will fall because of the lesser sins you have accepted as normal. Read verse two. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Now, People look at David and say, why on earth did he do what he did? Well, here's the moment. David, the couch potato, gets up off his couch and starts walking on the palace roof while his army is at battle. And he looks down and he sees Bathsheba. Now, <clears throat> a lot of ink and a lot of debate has gone, uh, uh, been written about why he sees Bathsheba. How is this possible? and people debate. Um, did she forget there was a palace up there? His palace is at the top of the city at this point in time. Did she forget there's a palace up there? Um, or maybe he, he was where he shouldn't have been. He was wandering around trying to kill time where he shouldn't have been. Maybe she had an expectation of privacy. Maybe she did it on purpose. We don't know. Now, was he guilty in, in seeing that, right? Um, well, maybe, maybe not. It certainly would have been better if he wasn't up there looking down. Now, that, that does come to a little side point about avoiding temptation. It's pretty, pretty obvious. Uh, keeping temptation out of sight and mind is often the best way to avoid sin. Uh, my wife loves me, and she works hard to keep snacks out of the house. And that is the easiest way to avoid temptation. I can't fight losing battles with cookies and Doritos if they are not in the pantry. We don't know if he was wrong to look down. But then we must ask, why did he keep looking? He did not avert his eyes. He didn't redirect his mind. He didn't hurry inside and make himself busy and write another poem. He kept looking. I think 2 Samuel has already told us 
why he kept looking. We look at David's harem, David's harem. For example, in chapter five, it says, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters are born to David. Now, mind you, by this point, when he gets to Jerusalem, he already has seven. And we don't know exactly how many wives he ended up with, but something like at least 10. Not counting the concubines, the second-tier quasi-wives, because that's what every woman wants to be, a second-tier quasi-wife. Now, the text is not praising David by saying, oh, Israel's finally arrived. They have a king who can have a harem. The text is not stating simple facts. This is how many wives he had. It's not making sure that all of his wives get their name in print. The text is highlighting a serious defect. Now, we might naturally ask, what on earth is a man with seven, ten wives doing staring at another man's wife? He's not starved for intimacy or companionship, which is kind of the point that Nathan makes in chapter 12, when Nathan comes to him and says, there was a man who had one lamb and his neighbor had a whole bunch of sheep and took his one lamb. It's saying, David, you got a lot of wives. Why, would you, why did you take this woman? But I would argue that a man with several wives is a lot more likely to commit adultery. Just like a man who uh, is a serial monogamist, um, is married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. Are you surprised if he commits adultery? I don't think so. Or someone who has a series of extramural relationships. They're likely to commit adultery. David's polygamy is the clue to why he does this. He also should have known better for another reason. He's only the second king of Israel. And there is a verse in Deuteronomy that has only applied to Saul and him so far. And it forbids kings from multiplying wives. He knew it was there. Most people can't multiply wives unless there's a shortage of men. But kings certainly could. And Deuteronomy said, don't. Because we were designed for monogamy. Polygamy is a distortion of God's design. It is driven by, by lust and greed. And a king doesn't form a harem because he wants a bunch of extra covenantal relationships for meaningful companionship and partnership. Look at his son, Solomon, who has a thousand wives and concubines. Did any of you have a thousand good friends? It's not why Solomon has a harem. It was about lust and about selfishness and about wanting to have a gigantic, a powerful family and having alliances with other nations. The culture tolerated a harem because other great kings had them. It was familiar to the Israelites, but, you know, just because other people do it doesn't make it right. So here we have David in a legal covenantal relationship with these women, but he has distorted the role of marriage in his life. He has these wives to satisfy his, his, his desires. 
not because he is engaging primarily in God's design for marriage of friendship, partnership, and mutual sanctification. And mind you also, each of those wives gets less of a husband. So David's polygamy was a deliberate decision to um, distort God's design, and he was comfortable with it, even though it was sin. But normalizing the sin of polygamy made him more vulnerable to the sin of adultery. So what sin do you accept as normal that can normalize it for you and enable you to fall? Because when you fall, and I hope you don't, you will fall in an area where you have normalized sin. The first application there is expose and repent of the sins you have normalized. They are ticking time bombs. So ask yourself, what sin are you comfortable with? Where have you acclimated yourself? Just like David and the people around him were acclimated to this polygamy. Now, next application, since it is hard to see sins you have normalized, invite the input of others. Things that are normalized become normal. It really helps to hear what other people have to say. It might be that thing that your wife bugs you about. Look into what other people tell you. Ask others what they think is a normalized sin in your life. Maybe it's one of these sins. Uh, here are some examples. Pride. Pride becomes normalized for a lot of us. All of us struggle with pride to some degree. No offense. You might say, hey, I'm just firm in my beliefs, right? I just, I'm just a little intolerant to people disagreeing with me. Who likes to be disagreed with anyway? Then, if this is you, you are normalizing thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. And guess what? That's going to expose you to all sorts of cataclysmic sin because you are uncorrectable. You will go on your path regardless of what other people tell you. Here's another one. Envy or jealousy. You know, you look around at the people around you, you're jealous of where they got in life, what they have in life, how they get to use their time. You're jealous of their family. You've normalized a hunger for wanting what you don't have. And you become less effective at loving them because you can't love them and be jealous at the same time. And that makes you vulnerable to great sins like greed, betrayal, or hate in a relationship. This is to say nothing of other sins of sexual immorality. Normalizing lust leads to pornography. Normalizing pornography leads to great sin. Number three, your fall will be a series of sins, not simply one big one. Your fall will be a series of sins, not simply one big one. Read with me from verse three. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself for her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David did not accidentally sin. I've heard some pretty weird versions of the story of David and Bathsheba. 
The weirdest ones pin all the blame on Bathsheba, which is just an ignorance of the text. It's, it's not how the text paints things. Other people talk about it like this. What happened to David? He's a man after God's own heart. A servant king. He goes for a walk on his roof one day and bam, he commits adultery. So watch out, kids. You'll be walking along through your life, looking up at the, the sky and the stars, and then just you'll fall through a manhole cover. So just catch yourself when you fall. <laughs> that ignores, of course, how David made himself vulnerable to sin. It also ignores how persistent he was as he sinned. He commits a series of sin. There must have been alarm bells going off in his mind, and he must have silenced them. The text lays these things out in detail. He looked when he should have looked away. He inquired about her when he should have repented of lust. He persisted when told that she was Uriah's wife, when he should have been nauseous with guilt and repented. He sent for her when he should have sent himself away to war or occupied himself in some other way. It was a series of deliberate decisions. Great sin doesn't happen all at once. It's a lot more like eating a can of Pringles. You know, once you pop, you can't stop. You eat chip after chip, at least I do. I like to turn them upside down so the salt is on my tongue. Chip after chip. The slogan is, once you pop, you can't stop. But that's not true, is it? You can stop. If you eat a whole can of Pringles when you're on a low-salt diet, it's your fault. If your doctor was sitting there next to you with a blood pressure cuff on your arm, he'd be saying, why the second chip? Why the third chip? What are you doing? Your fall will be a series of sins, not simply one big one. And David commits a series of sins. The application there is that you need breaks. When your conscience objects, always stop. When the Holy Spirit is stabbing you in the side, listen and stop. This is how you avoid great sins, which come as a series of smaller sins. You are not like a car that has brakes that wear out. And if you drive a car, you should, you know, brake slowly and gently. You want to roll as efficiently as possible and use the brakes as little as possible. You're a human being. Your brakes get better when you use them. And then when you do collide with sin, you should assess yourself. Ask yourself, when should I have braked? Could I have braked earlier? What is the earliest I could possibly have braked before I committed this great sin? You need breaks. Next, you will fall when you take after you justify your desire and discount the cost. You will fall when you take after you justify your desire and discount the cost. Now, this is almost entirely from a single word. So David sent his messengers and took her, and she came to him. Notice that if you take out and took her, the story doesn't change at all. So David sent messengers, and she came to him, and he lay with her. 
The author is deliberately adding, and took her. That's because sin takes. Like even the garden, who saw the fruit was good and took it. David took what the Lord said he must not touch. Sin takes. And, of course, if you are in a me mood, you are much more likely to say, mine. Like in the Pixar movie, Finding Nemo, when the seagulls say, mine, 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 mine. Sin takes. And when sin takes, it is also a taking from. David took Bathsheba from Uriah, her husband. And he will take Uriah's life, too, to keep his secret. And he took other things, of course. He took her purity from her. He took peace from his family. David was a polygamist, which means he didn't have just one covenant relationship to break. He had several. Imagine being married to an adulterer and murderer. A man who seemed legit, but then proved to be capable of great evil. And God's judgment is going to fall heavily on the family as a whole. And he took peace from Israel. After this, everything unravels. Okay? David is a man after God's own heart. And God uses him enormously. But his sin dwarfs, say, the sin of Moses. And the consequences of his sin are laid out through the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. Time after time after again, the things in 2 Samuel are traced back to David's sin here. He ends up with horrible sin in his family that he is, I think, just internally powerless to do anything about. He ends up with civil war, rebellion, tens of thousands of lives lost, significant instability in Israel. It can all be traced back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. It is helpful to analyze sin by its taking. You want it. You take it, you gain, others lose. And sin is always unloving, and you can look at its taking and see what it's doing. Take something really simple, stealing. You uh, are minding your own business, and someone steals your laptop. They take it because they want it. And they figure, oh, yeah, you're well-dressed, or you got a nice car, $7.99 plus tax, you'll be fine, you just replace it. But they took a lot more from you than just your laptop, Okay. They took your peace of mind. Usually the thief is not, uh, not caught, or cooked, not caught. And you now have to look around wondering who is like this. Which person you walk by in the street is also stealing laptops. About a year ago, someone slashed the tires of my car. I don't think it was personal, because six other people had the same thing happen to their car around us. Um, so what happened? You know, so two kids are walking down the street. And one says to the other, say, hey, watch this. Takes out his pocket knife. Psh, 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 right? What did he take? A little bit of entertainment. A little bit of showing off. What did he take from me? Several hundred dollars to fix my tires in my driveway. You know what else? I'm honestly less comfortable with where I live now. Right? He took. I want to analyze this with some simpler sins. How about fubbing? Who's heard of fubbing? Oh, good. Oh, one of you, okay. Snubbing with your phone. Snubbing with your phone. 
I, I struggle with this sin. I'm sitting at dinner with my family, pull out my phone, start reading something mindlessly or texting. What am I doing? Well, I, I want to take something. Oh, yeah, I was going to read that. Or, oh, ding, someone messaged me. I should look at that. And I take for myself a little bit of pleasure. Right? I take from myself their father, their husband. I devalue my family. I teach my kids bad habits. How about another one? I like interrupting. Not I, like, I don't like interrupting. I like the example of interrupting. Someone else is talking to you, right? They are speaking. You decide that you need to speak over them. That whatever they are saying doesn't actually matter as much as what you feel like you need to say. And so you take the spotlight from them, and you also take from them a little bit of their dignity and their comfort and the joy they had in the conversation because you want to say what you want to say. That's taking. Or um, you're with somebody else doing work. So I'm, I'm at home working with my wife. We're in a little phase after dinner where we clean up the house. And, and I decide, man, this has been a long day. And I sneak off to my office. This doesn't happen very often, but it has. And I sit down in my chair and I lean back and I study the aesthetics of the stucco on the ceiling. Meanwhile, I have taken for myself some comfort and I have taken from my way at wife a great deal of her comfort because now she has four little kids she's trying to keep on track and doesn't have peace of mind. Sin takes. Sin takes. The application there is refuse to excuse your sin by rationalizing what you need or deserve. Usually when we take, we exaggerate the desire as a need and then we commit our sin. Also, get in the habit of honestly identifying the cost of your sin when you confess. I, I have to recognize that when you commit sin, you usually are not thinking directly about the consequences, except when you're being especially calloused. But afterwards, you have the opportunity to assess your sin. What if David did this? What if he looked at his sin with Bathsheba and thought about all of the harm that could flow from this. I might commit murder. I might tear up my family. I might destabilize the country. He would have looked at the sin and said, wow, that is way too dangerous. And he would have thought straight. You will fall when you take. Don't rationalize the sin. So, <clears throat> in closing, how are you going to fall? David shows us how you will fall. You'll be in a me mood. You'll be in a me mood. You'll fall because of the sins that you have normalized, the things that you have decided are okay. That is the area you will probably fall. And it won't happen all at once, like a pothole in the road. It will be a series of decisions before you commit great sin. And then you'll take for yourself because you made it your habit somewhere to take. Now, the enormous hope in Scripture is that, well, we have a Holy Spirit within us to tell us what we are doing wrong. And we have the enormous sacrifice of Christ that pays for great sin. 
I believe scripture shows that David repented. He didn't get himself free of all the consequences of sin, but he did repent. And I believe scripture teaches us that you will see him one day. And then you can ask him, what went wrong? Okay, but the sacrifice of Christ pays for sin. We have hope from our heavenly father through his son, Jesus Christ. That does not absolve you, though, from learning from scripture here and understanding how you will fall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of this text. We thank you, Lord, um, that you deal honestly with our human weaknesses. And you do not leave us alone in our weakness. You give us powerful words in scripture that are compelling. You give us your Holy Spirit. You give us the enormous love poured out on us through Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us. You would empower us to grapple with the sins that we normalize and um, the sins that are driven by self-centeredness. That we might have boats that float high, not leaky boats, boats that run fast, that are bailed of sin on a regular basis, that we might glorify you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.